Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. One of my favourite panels, I've got to say, and they've just pointed out to me when I greeted them tonight, they said, oh, look, it's one of my favourite panels. Apparently, last time I saw them, I said it was my the most favourite panel. So I don't know what they've done since, but let's see how they perform tonight, shall we? We've got Ben Habib, who's a former uh, Brexit Party MEP and CEO of the First Property Group. Jeevan Sander, who's an economist at King's College London. And Ali Mirage, who's a columnist at The Article and founder of the Contrarian Prize. And I also, uh, you know, the drill anyway on Jubes and Co by now. It's not just about us. Uh, and our thoughts. It's you at home as well and yours. What's on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, of course, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. We've got an app. We've got a podcast. We're on Radio DAB+. We are everywhere. So wherever you're watching or listening, good evening to you. You're very welcome tonight. One of the things I won't be talking about, by the way, um, the gents on the panel had a bit of a reaction to it, was the story about the protesters uh, you just heard in the news headlines. I don't like giving them airtime. I think the more we talk about these kind of uh, moronic behaviours, the more we fuel it. Uh, so I won't be talking about them anymore tonight. Uh, what I will be talking about today, though, is the millions of us that are going to be getting uh, an electric shock, so to speak, when we see our energy bills. They're going to be rising by up to £700 a year, I refer, of course, to the 54% rise in the energy price cap. Basically means a household using a typical amount of gas and electricity will now pay £1,900 a year. Now, let's, let's not forget, it's not just energy that is going up. It's the cost of pretty much everything. Of course, many will say that to offset this, the government introduced a rise in the minimum wage and some financial support to soften the blur. But is the government doing enough, Jeevan Sander? <laughs> Uh, absolutely not. It is going to be a very expensive year for everybody ahead, but it's going to be the most deprived who suffer the most. Before today's 50% increase in energy prices, we saw one in three people struggling to heat their homes. That number is going to go up. One in three having to cut back on their food shop as well. Now, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, had an extra £20 billion in his pocket at this spring statement. Unexpectedly, he could have raised Social Security payments in line with inflation. He chose not to do so. It means the most vulnerable in this country, children, pensioners, and the severely disabled who can't work will suffer the most. So you would want him to, you would have wanted him to raise benefits by more, what was it, 3.1% or something you're raising by? You would want um, a higher increase in that? Certainly, at least more than 8%. And he had the money to do so. And those people... More than 8%? More than 8%, which is what inflation will be in the next year. And even then, we've got to remember that those in the lowest incomes face a higher inflation rate. They spend more of their money on energy, more of their money on food. Both those prices are going to increase in part because of the invasion or Putin's invasion in Ukraine. Ben Habib? Well, in, in a very substantial degree with what Jeevan said, you know, I think that we've got a perfect economic storm. And, you know, if you just cast your mind back a little bit, just to try and understand how we got here, it's a direct result of lockdown and bad energy policy from the government. Lockdowns created a complete breakdown in our supply chains 
And our government, frankly, was asleep at the wheel. You, you, everyone will recall, viewers will recall, that when we were going through lockdown, the Prime Minister said, well, we're going to use this opportunity for a green new revolution. We're going to become the Saudi Arabia of wind. Well, that hasn't worked so well, has it? Actually, the reality is all economies, particularly Western economies, turn on the use of gas and oil. And we were irresponsible in the way that we let our reserves drop, the way that we haven't exploited natural resources we have in this country that could have alleviated the problems that we're now facing. You know, we deliberately turned our back on fracking. We deliberately haven't been issuing licenses, um, licenses for more gas extraction from the North Sea. And the end, the, at the end of the day, and this is very basic economics, which, with which I think Jeevan will definitely agree, is that if you, want to, if you want to solve a problem of inflation, you don't do it by fueling demand. You don't do it by putting a few extra quid in people's back pockets. The way you do it is by increasing supply of whatever that, whatever that substance is that's caused the constraint in the first place. In this case, it's fuel. So the key thing this government needs to do is get off its high horse on this drive to net zero, at least for the short to medium term, and put in place a coherent energy strategy which makes the United Kingdom self-sufficient for gas and oil. And we are able to do that. That's what they have to focus on. And that's great, Ali, but that doesn't help us in the immediate term, does it? It's all well and good talking about fracking and should we do net zero or not. But right now, in the here and the now, people, I mean, it's snowing in parts of the UK mm -hmm. and a lot of people will not be able to put their heating on. They'll be frightened to put their heating on. That's right, and that's what's happening now. I think Ben makes a very good point about energy security more generally, which we, is a whole separate topic. But on the specifics of this current situation, Michelle... Look, I do understand. I, I accept what Jeevan says about the poorest in society are going to be the hardest hit. The reality is we're all going to have to tighten our belts. The, the most help should be directed to the most disadvantaged in society, right? I agree with that. However, I just want to, like, uh, defend Rishi Sunak here a little bit here because he's been having a very tough time over the last couple of weeks, and I don't think it's completely justified. Look, he's gone from the, from the greatest thing since Cyrus the Great in the 6th century BC, right, when he was, like, doling out cash with furlough schemes and bounce-back loans to now being vilified. Uh, the reality is that we have had an economic shock, the like of which we've not seen since World War II, mm. which was the COVID pandemic. So, no, 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 it was the lockdowns, Ali. It was it wasn't okay, the pandemic. I know, I, know, I, know, I know that you've got a specific view on lockdowns, but just, just on this, hear me out. We had to spend a lot of money, 400 billion of borrowing he had to do. Now, on the back of that, he's also got 2 trillion of public debt. Now, Jeevan points to the fact that he's got 20 billion of headroom. The reason why he hasn't spent the 20 billion of headroom up front completely right now, which he could have done, it was a choice, is because he's saying, look, I'm going to do certain things. I'm going to reduce, uh, I'm going to cut off 5p off fuel duty. I'm going to raise the, uh, uh, the starting point of national insurance. But he's going to keep some stuff in the locker for later because he might have to intervene later in the year when the price cap is reviewed in October. And, and just one other final point is that interest rates are rising now. Jeevan talked about uh, inflation rising, interest rates are rising. Rishi Sunak knows for every 1% increase in interest rates, it adds another 20 billion of debt service costs uh, to, to servicing the public debt. So he knows that. He's very worried about that. So you've got to put it in context. So, I mean, Labour, of course, we've got the local elections coming up in May. So Labour, uh, th this is a dream come, tr come true for them. The whole kind of uh, cost of living, they are campaigning. They're going on the front foot with this. One of the things that they're saying is about the windfall tax, mm. uh, Jeevan, that we should have, uh, well, we could still do it, actually. It's not ruled out. But 
there should be a windfall tax on energy companies. Would you support that? Well, it certainly is a good idea and actually does a good way of getting money from those kind of oil producers, seeing huge profits into families' pockets. And on the point of labour, yeah, I think you're completely right. Everyone's going to be feeling this. We know that how much your incomes are growing in an election year really affect how you vote. And Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, not only I think made an economic and moral mistake, but a political one. Pensioners are the core Conservative vote. And he's just cut their pensions by over 5% this year. I don't know what he was thinking. And in the longer term as well, whenever the next election comes, 2024, income still won't be recovering that strongly. I also want to pick up on one other thing as well. It is true that Rishi had this kind of excess 20 billion he had there. He also decided to save some of that for an income tax in an election year. That was a nakedly political move because he thinks it will help him get re-elected in the future. But he chose not to help pensioners today. We shouldn't forget that choice that he made. Ben, you're Well, I mean, I've got a real issue with Rishi Sunak. Um, you know, we locked down the economy and that cost is, as Ali pointed out, I, I actually, I think it was around 500 billion is the figure I've got in my head, but 400 billion. National de debt went up by 33%. And then as we unlocked, instead of helping uh, the private sector. And instead of helping people back into work, he's raised taxes. Corporation taxes heading up. National insurance went up today. We haven't talked about that, but at the same time... As did the threshold, though. The threshold before you need yeah, to start but, paying it. But employers pay another one and a quarter percent out of their pockets from the ground up. So as of today, my company is now paying 15.05% employers' national insurance. It is a massive on cost to the employment, to, to employment. It makes employers very reluctant to employ. Mm. You know, it's counterintuitive. But and then, so, but so, if we don't do this, because one of the problems that we've got is if I pick on social care, um, and I know that the national insurance initially was going to help in the NHS, but the longer term social care, one of the problems is we have a problem with social care mm. and funding social care yeah. in this country. It, this can has been kicked down the road for God only knows how many years. Successive governments have done nothing about it. This particular government has said, right, enough now. We're going to put a line in the sand. We're going to take action. We're going to fix this problem. It's not a popular option. But you don't, you but don't, fix, do you don't fix the problem by throwing more money at it. Anne Whittacombe, by the way, was on with Dan Wooden last night. She spoke eminent sense about the NHS and equally applicable to social care. There's got to be a revised... Uh, assessment of what the NHS's function That's is. It's a much here. bigger thing. But look, I think, the, uh, Michelle, you make a very good point. That can was kicked down the road by successive governments. I mean, even it's been going on for years, right? It's never been that nettle has never been grass. You've got to give the government some credit for at least fessing up to the issue. Look, people have got different views on how that should have been financed. They said we're going to do it via a 1.25% increase in national insurance. And what this has meant now, Rishi Sunak increasing the thresholds, what this means is then instead of 12 billion being spent next year, it's going to be 6 billion spent next year. Now, that is effectively a, a real terms cut in the funding for, for the NHS. Now, you've also got to bear in mind that we've got a 6 million waiting list and rising. And rising. In the NHS at the moment. My biggest concern, actually, when this whole thing was announced was that the poor social care sector will never see the money because the NHS won't get its grubby arms off it because it needs the money all the time. The NHS is constantly needing more and more Absolutely financing. Absolutely right. right? Yeah. So, so that is a bigger problem. But look, back to the core issue. It is going to be difficult. The problem is we are going to have to tighten our belts the most support should be directed to the most disadvantaged in society. The rest of us are going to be in for a period 
that is rocky and tough and hard. And we've got to get real. We've had just had a two-year period, which has been one of the most seismic shocks to the UK economy since the end of World but War II. But Ali, it, it, it was the most seismic shock. It was a, a, a seismic shock delivered through government policy. Yeah, it was a choice. They, it was a choice. Mm. We had two years to get ready to unlock. We had two years to recognise what steps we had to take in order to recover from that economic but ben, shock. But how are we going to pay and, for all of it? Are you, you want well, to if you're going to spend, yeah. just mathematically, if you're going to spend $500 billion shutting the economy down, you should be prepared to spend an equal amount getting the economy going. It kind of sounds symmetrical to me. If you're going to spend $500 billion shutting us down, you've got to be prepared to spend that again to get us out. It's not about national debt at the end of the day. It's not about the government's interest bill. It is about growth in the economy. But we've got a specific and issue right now, Ben, with, with energy prices. Yeah, but you know, we've got a specific issue and we've got to stop knee-jerk reactions dealing with specific issues. Everything I see with this government is a knee-jerk reaction. We need urgently a proper energy policy so that by October, we've got North Sea back on tap. So Quadrilla or other companies can actually get fracking. They've got to get off their backsides and actually have it a coherent strategy. The other thing I just want to point out is he's chucking money at people to pay off their fuel bills. At the same time, is raising taxes. It's just counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. And then you've got the Bank of England similarly raising interest rates. So you've got no coherency between monetary and fiscal policy at the moment. You've, you've just got a completely incoherent set of government policies. I'm not sure that is so incoherent, right? Because on the one hand, the Bank of England does want to tamp down demand. On the other hand, you also want to help families out as well. But you it's want to incoherent. Deal you know, you're pumping money into the system and, and you're trying to take money out of the system. But the monetary side would do that, right? You are trying to tamp down demand on that side. And also a lot of our inflation at the moment is being driven yeah. by this kind of cost pressure. So actually a lot of it is being Breakdown driven supply by, chains. which is not so much through the demand side. But I agree there's also a demand side response that has to happen. I would just say I would also do agree with Ben in terms of our debt. We should remember that actually Rishi Sunak is in a far better position than we thought so. The UK economy is more than capable of servicing its debt. You know, we think debt to GDP will peak at about 95%. When you buy your house and you get a loan out, a mortgage, your debt to GDP ratio, your debt to income ratio is 300%, three to one. You pay that down over your lifetime. The difference between us and a government is that governments don't die. Governments don't have to pay down their debt to zero. And we're borrowing at 0%. Yeah, Our debt is more than serviceable, Jeevan, something to worry Jeevan, about. Jeevan, in a, that was, that, this is a mantra I've heard from people on the left, right, for, for a long time. The problem is interest rates are now rising. There's no free lunch here. The only way governments can raise money is either taxing you more or borrowing more. In a raising interest rate, in a rising interest rate environment, that is going to cost more. The reality is we just have to get real as a public here that we have had a really seismic shock. We are going to have to tighten our belts. I understand the point that you make, um, Ben, about growth. But I also feel that unless you want to mortgage the future of our kids uh, in terms of this and pass the burdens on, we've got to actually raise taxes. Uh, uh, Ali, I so disagree. We did. The, 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 the Conservative government's been now in power for 12 years, give or take the coalition. And they have had exactly the same policy again and again. When they dealt with the credit crunch, they had the Bank of England print enough money to bail out the banks, and then they stopped and they instituted austerity. This time round, they've had the Bank of England again print just, amount, just about enough cash 
to get rid, you know, to, to, to deal with this uh, economic busting lockdown policy. And then as soon as we get out of lockdown, they say, well, now we've got to be austere. No, you've got to go for growth. You've destroyed growth. The banks destroyed growth. Growth had to be re-engineered in the economy. You can't just bail out the banks and then fail to bail out. calling for a tax cut now. Uh, we need tax cuts. We need tax cuts I mean, urgently. Corporation tax should not be being increased. We should not be signing up to a ben, global minimum be standard lower of 15%. Than when George Osborne was in. We, he's raising it to 19 to 25%. We, it's still going to be it lower. It needs to come back. Business rates need to be cut. It's absolutely iniquitous that we pay massive business rates for premises. The sector's most hard hit, hospitality, retail, they have the biggest property costs and they need their taxes cut. National insurance needs to be cut, not increased. Income tax, frankly, should be cut at the lowest levels, not for the rich people, not for people like me, but for the lower, lower earners. They have to cut tax. It is going to be. The income tax uh, is going to be reduced, isn't it, in 2024? Uh, in 2024. Just before the election. As, as Jeevan said, as an election throwaway. I mean, it, it, and to admit that now really reveals... So much no, about but if you their listen, if you listen to If you listen to what Rishi Sunak said a few weeks ago at the Mays Lecture at Bayes Business School, I, I, I listened to him very carefully. What he said was, in his DNA, he is a tax-cutting kind of person, right? Which is what a lot of conservatives are. The reality is he wants to do it on a fiscally responsible basis. At the moment, the fiscal position does not allow... Right, We've had 12... Can I just say this? We've had 12 really years quick, of Conservative government. We've had 12 years of Conservative government. Debt-to-GDP ratio has never been higher than it is now. Taxes as a proportion of GDP haven't been as high as this since World War II. This, this Conservative government and Rishi Sunak is not a tax cutter. They're not fiscally... They're not fiscally... Uh, uh, they've got no fiscal probity. They are socialists. What we've got in government are socialists. Right. Well, speaking of socialism, I want a really brief yes or no answer from each of you. Bernard has emailed in saying about all of this, this is the time to nationalise the utilities. Yes or no, Ben? No. No? Steven? It's complicated. Complicated? You can't sit on the fence. Uh, yeah, I was, yes it's, no? There are common ownership ways that could work, but I don't think it's like a, a simple yes or no answer at this point. Ali? No, but you rely on regulators to make sure people don't get ripped off. Yeah. Right. Well, Trevor has also emailed in saying, I'm hearing everyone crying out for the government's help uh, with taxpayers, but nobody helped us in the early 80s when we had things like uh, mortgage rates at 16%, he says. Enid has been in touch saying it's snowing here and freezing cold. I'm a pensioner and I'm in bed already watching you with a hot water bottle and the cats. That's oh. good, actually. Yeah, it does, actually. Yeah, we'll all come to your bed. There you go. We'll heat your bed up for you, Enid. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co. with me, Michelle Jubry. Just a very brief reminder as to who my panellists tonight. Someone's already emailed in saying, you are the dream team. It's Ben Habib, who's a former Brexit Party MEP and CEO of the First Property Group. Jeevan Sander, who's an economist at King's College London. And Ali Mirage, who's a columnist at The Article and founder of the Contrarian Prize. Um, lots of you getting in contact. I want to find uh, some people that think that the government is doing enough. Uh, not many of you seem to be out there, slash none of you seem to be out there. So if you are out there and you're watching, listening, and you're shouting at your telly or your radio, yes, Rishi is doing enough. Get in touch with me. I want to hear those thoughts. GBviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes. Now, Britain has warned Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky to remain strong in the face of Russian aggression. 
because the UK is worried that other allied leaders could push him to agree a rust peace deal with Russia, which would further President Putin. It's believed the UK government thinks that a peace deal must be made with Ukraine in a strong position. Britain fears that if Ukraine is pushed into a peace deal by, say, America, France and Germany, then Putin will enjoy weaker sanctions and could possibly avoid prosecution as a war criminal, amongst other concessions in return for the end of the hostilities. Uh, Ali, let me start with you on this. There seems to be a lot of people telling Ukraine what they should and shouldn't do. Surely it's Ukraine and Ukraine alone that should decide what to accept, when to accept it. No, I think that's right. But but also, I think there's a couple of other uh, points to note in recent days. There was General uh, Sonic uh, Parker, former head of uh, UK Land Forces, saying that NATO had actually failed in its defense of, uh, of Ukraine. And actually, they should be looking now to work with a smaller group of nations to find a more offensive strategy vis-a-vis -vis Russia. But why is it NATO's well, job to defend Ukraine if Ukraine's not... In, in, no, no not indeed, I, I agree. I totally agree with that. The, the, the issue you've got here, uh, Michelle, is you've got a situation where uh, everyone's got their own interest. The Germans, for example, are very much dependent on Russian gas, so they're not going to be as open or as vociferous as the UK is. UK is... Uh, Zelensky likes Boris. The UK has given a lot of support, particularly in terms of lethal aid uh, to Ukraine as well, which has been welcome. The, the US, for its part, would not give the MiG fighter jets from Poland that Poland wanted to deploy, without NATO personnel, by the way, give them the MiG fighter jets, because the US was saying that it would be an offensive, it would be regarded as an offensive tactic. The, re the reality is NATO is already involved in it in a to a degree, right, by giving weapons. The fundamental thing that I'm struggling with is if Zelensky ends up, as he's indicated partly uh, in recent days, that he signs away Donbass, he signs away Crimea, he recognizes Crimea belongs to Russia, and he signs a treaty uh, recognizing the fact that Ukraine will remain a neutral, neutral country and not join NATO. The question I've got is, why do we have to end up here in the first place? That was exactly what Putin was asking for all along. I, I'm, I'm struggling to understand it. So thousands of people have to die for us to reach the same position we could have been at before we started this fiasco. I, well, I think actually Putin doesn't have a right to take what he likes. So in the first instance, it was up to Ukraine whether or not those regions would want to have joined Russia. And in particular, we think about what's going to happen, the likely contours of a peace deal. It will be a referendum that will be kind of issued to the Ukrainian people. And I suspect in that pe in that kind of period, the Crimea Crimea may go over to Russia, but it doesn't like to say what happened in Donetsk and the Hans. But, 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 and so NATO it's was not, spurring him it's on, not Putin. NATO was spurring him on about the sovereignty issue, right? NATO was saying uh, Ukraine is a sovereign nation, uh, exactly to this point, but NATO's not going to go in physically. So they've let them down. They've Absolutely neither they've right. neither let Ukraine join NATO, nor have they supported them in this particular case. It's the worst of all worlds. We've yeah. supplied a lot of aid and we have helped Ukraine defend themselves. We didn't enter into a war that would have ended up into World War well, III. This is it would have been incredibly difficult. And actually, I do think that we can't say to dictators when they threaten to invade, yes, we'll give you what you want to have. Because think about the kind of the future. And we have seen this happen before. And we saw it happen in the 19th. 30s, when we did say, yes, you can have what you like because you're threatening it. I'm just, I mean, I support everything Ali said. I mean, this is classic Western foreign policy fighting a proxy war. It's Ukrainians dying, not, not British, exactly. German or American soldiers. And ultimately, whether you've supplied a few lethal weapons or, or humanitarian aid doesn't give you the right of say. This is for a Ukrainian decision. But I find it really amusing. Our Prime Minister, sorry, I find our Prime Minister amusing 
quite often. But I, I find him particularly amusing trying to embolden the Ukrainians yeah. to be firm with Russia. You know, when he himself is so weak in the face of the EU, he capitulated on the withdrawal agreement. He capitulated on the Northern Ireland Protocol. He capitulated on a level playing field. He capitulated on our fishing rights. And there he is, trying to egg on the How Ukrainians. How do you get to Brexit from Ukraine? I love well, your, your I mean, pivots. No, but you know, here's a man who wants to thump his chest and be all Churchillian in the way that he deals with things. But actually, when he has to take yeah. the stand, yeah. he doesn't do it. No, we have no right to be lecturing the Ukrainians. This is their decision. And they have to judge how many more deaths they're prepared exactly. to tolerate before yeah. they reach. But you a know, peace one agreement. of the things, one of the things I honestly feel is, and this is not to be a Putin apologist. I mean, look, I, he he clamps down on dissent. Uh, he is an autocrat. So no, no, I don't think there are very many people who would be defending Vladimir Putin's actions. However, he did make it very clear in 2007 that the thought of Ukraine joining NATO would be a red rag to a bull. It was a red line for him. In 2008, George W. Bush at the Bucharest conference on NATO said that Georgia and, Georgia and Ukraine should be part of NATO. Absolutely. What on earth were they thinking? If, if the Soviets put missiles in Cuba in 1962, it nearly led to World War III. If the Russians were to put missiles in Mexico, how would, you, how would Joe Biden react? Absolutely. Honestly, what, this, is about, this is not about, in my view, this whole nonsense we hear about this is a battle between democracy versus autocracy. Putin doesn't care about spreading autocracy to Ukraine. This is about power. It's about balance of power, spheres of influence, and interest, naked self-interest of different states. And they all have them. Don't tell me that the US didn't have its interest in Iraq when Joe Biden now last week is lecturing us on about moral authority. I think yeah. the moral authority was evaporated when the US went into that. But Absolutely Ale, but right. Ale, I think you raise an interesting point here about this uh, expansion of NATO to the yeah. east because yeah. for some reason, mm. a lot of people want to deny that this was essentially the one of, if not the reason that this yeah, but conflict no to talk about that. has begun. But why? Well, the thing is, look, I, no, to, to do that is not to be an appeaser of Putin, right? Putin, Putin is he's got his own interests. He's not he's not a figure who takes any dissent whatsoever. He's an autocrat, right? So no one's defending that. Certainly not me. But on the the, the the sheer foreign policy element of it, and the fact that if you are expanding, you're bumping up to NATO's borders on Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania. Ukraine is a red line for Putin. He made it clear again and again and again. And if you look at the NATO website, you'll see. This has been going back years that they've been cozying up. The, the, re the real issue is the Ukrainians have been let down, a bit like the Turks were let down with respect to the EU. You sort of dangle this carrot. It's a bit like dating a girl and never offering yeah. to marry her, right? You, you end up in this situation where the Ukrainians are neither part of NATO nor are they not part of I mean, NATO. We've done it across the globe, Ali, haven't we? We encouraged the Kurds to rise up against Saddam Hussein and then we weren't there for yeah. them. We encouraged Afghanis to collaborate with us when we were in Afghanistan and then we just bailed on them. We, we've done, we did the same in Syria. We encouraged the people to stand up against Assad and then we didn't come to their assistance. We stirred up trouble in Libya. You know, we bombed Libya and then we exited. We're really good at stirring up trouble and we can't hide behind this faux claim to be exporting democratic ideology to these autocratic totalitarian... It's got nothing to do with it. It's got nothing to do but with it. you know it. the other thing, Ben, just one other thing. I was listening to Gillian Tett from the FT the other day, um, who was talking about the fact that, generally speaking, she should make a general point, 
We, we, have lateral, we, we do not have lateral vision. We have tunnel vision. We never bother to put ourselves in the shoes of our opponents, our enemies, to think about how our actions might be perceived from their perspective. Not to sympathize with them, just to actually get our own foreign policy correct. Right? Yeah, no one ever right. thinks about yeah. this for, from the position of Moscow, how it would be perceived to be NATO bumping up against your border. Yeah, and I do. That is the point in all of this, Ali, that I've just found peculiar, that people don't want to have that conversation. And if you dare and have that conversation, Straight away, people going, she's apologising for Putin, he's apologising for Putin. I found it very bizarre. Anyway, final word to you on this, Stephen. Well, actually, I think Ukraine, if they had wanted to join NATO, it would have been their decision. Beforehand, Biden had already indicated that it would be a neutral state, that Ukraine would not join in the near future. It also doesn't really matter in one sense what Putin says. When he talks about spheres of influence, it was the same justification used by Stalin at the end of the Second World War to justify the Iron Curtain. We shouldn't give in to that kind of justification. And also, Putin is a man, as we've seen in his statements, not just just before the war, but his essay as well, who doesn't believe Ukraine is a real country. He does believe it is part of Russia. He believes it was his right to go in there. Actually, the guy who is to blame for this is to Putin. That is who it is. And the final fun fact is this. Russia, at the end of the 90s and the 2000s, was talking about joining NATO itself. Putin's change against NATO has been very kind of vociferous, certainly, but also was not always the way he kind of reasoned and, and had his rationale going back. Yeah, I mean, and let's uh, not forget when we talk about uh, NATO expansion, it started off with, I think, 12 countries, is now 30. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery. A quick reminder as to who my panel are. Ben Habib, former Brexit Party MEP and CEO of the first property group, Jeevan Sander, who's an economist at King's College London. And Ali Mirage, who's a columnist at The Article and founder of the Contrarian Prize. Lots and lots uh, of you guys getting in touch tonight saying, are you allowed to say guys now, by the way? Is that an acceptable word, guys? Yeah, yeah. yeah I think we're fine with that. Yeah, good. well, yeah, I'll, I'll embrace lots, it while I still can. Lots of it's being in touch. Yes, <laughs> lots of them or there or whatever it is anyway. Uh, lots of you getting in contact, really enjoying the debate. I have to say, I'm enjoying it as well. These guys are working hard to regain the, the top status as my top panel. Um, now, one of you got in touch, and I have to say, yes, there you go, I found it, Brian. Brian says, I am fed up with everyone knocking the government. Uh, increasing utility bills, etc. isn't good, but how about people start cutting their cloth accordingly? He goes on uh, to say, what about uh, people looking at their own behaviours, smoking, drinking, how they use electricity, uh, etc. He says, We've got to stop wanting to be a handout country. There you go. That's Brian in Exeter. What do you think to Brian's thoughts? Let me know. Shall we talk COVID for a brief moment? I wish I didn't have to. I can't wait for the day where I never need to mention the C word ever again. But it's not today, I'm afraid. Uh, because from today, free COVID testing will only continue in England for certain groups. Uh, with others who think they've got coronavirus, simply told to stay at home. Uh, long story short, basically, if you do have to pay for these tests, they're going to cost you about five. But let's just get to the point. Ben Habib, should we still be testing ourselves for COVID? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, we started this programme discussing, you know, the massive ills that we're now facing as a result of our policies towards COVID during lockdown and so on. And we've just got to get over COVID. COVID is now part of the spectrum of diseases with which we now have to live. And that's my final word on it, frankly. I've got nothing else to say. Turn our back on COVID and get on with life. Jeevan? 
Well, I think we do have to learn to live with COVID. Actually, I think we want to see some testing around. I think we're talking about it in the healthcare sector. I think also the education sector. We're seeing huge kind of absences of teachers because part of the problem is, the good news is we can live with COVID now. The good news is it doesn't kill nearly as many people now, but it's still a very infectious disease that does kind of make people in and stops them going to work. So actually making sure there are some tests available to stop it spreading so widely isn't a bad use, but also, Look, there is a good news here. And the good news is we're kind of leaving this pandemic after two years of going through it. And I don't think anyone here enjoyed that particular period very much. No, we did not. Ali? Look, um, at the moment, it's a bit of a raw situation uh, because I've just lost a cousin to COVID uh, very suddenly. And it's, it's, all, it's all extremely raw at the moment. Uh, so I don't believe it's a flu. Uh, I do believe it is more potent. And I also feel that it affects people in different ways. I mean, one of my colleagues is extremely young, fit, completely healthy. And she's been really badly affected uh, with this, uh, uh, by this for, for months now. It's taking a long time to recover. Look, I do think that testing in general is still sensible and a good idea. I do not believe that the government should have to pay for that unless you're in the NHS and you're mixing with people who are vulnerable on a, on a day-to-day basis. Then I think there should be some support there. But generally speaking, I don't think the government should be funding COVID tests for the rest of the population uh, indefinitely. I think I think we need to take responsibility again for ourselves. I think we're now moving from pandemic to endemic status, although case numbers are rising. Thankfully, hospitalization rates uh, and deaths in particular are not, uh, not, not despite what I've just said about my, 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 my cousin, um, they're not thankfully. Uh, but I do think we need to be mindful and we need to sort of move on. But uh, I don't think the government should fund it. But I do think there is a place still for testing in society. Yeah, I mean, I've got to say as well, I think COVID has actually affected people's brains because I can, no, I do, I'm serious. I can see such change in people's attitudes. I think people have uh, become really divided. I mean, I didn't even think we could get more divided than we were, you know, with the whole Brexit thing. But I think it's really kind of put a deep division in people, those that wanted lockdowns, those that absolutely didn't want lockdowns, uh, those that kind of want everyone to stay at home for as long as possible versus those that want to unlock. I think it's unlocked a, a sense of kind of almost hatred towards people. I think it's unlocked a sense of suspicion. Like I'm quite suspicious of people and things now. I, I don't believe kind of what I'm told, like official information anymore. I might perhaps have taken things at face value once, whereas now I'm, I don't know why. Well, that's a good thing to scrutinise. It's a good thing to scrutinise. Yeah, and I think you're right though, Michelle, because government policy on COVID has flip-flopped. You know, we were told, wash your hands for 20 seconds and sing happy birthday and everything will be fine. And then we had a national lockdown three weeks later. We were told that, um, you know, it was the elderly that were vulnerable, but actually we never adopted a policy to protect the elderly. We adopted a sort of, you know, general policy across uh, across the population. Um, we were told that face masks were utterly useless. Do you remember at the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, told, true, yeah. No one needs face masks. And then we were told, well, actually, they're utterly critical. And we have to wear Scotland. them all over the place. If I look at what's going on in Scotland, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, for example, they've still got masks. They're going to continue with masks for at least a few more weeks. And I just sit and I think of these school kids. And I think you've had these children now masked up since what is it, September two years ago or something like that mm. coming up to. And I think it's an outrage. And one of the things that we was doing the other day is was actually uh, the MP Christopher Chirp on this show uh, a few days ago, actually. He's putting a bill through Parliament looking at the vaccine damage payment scheme. 
the abuse and the insults that I have received on social media over the last kind of 48 hours or so for having the audacity in some people's minds mm. to even talk about the need to make sure that people that have got life-affecting side effects are uh, compensated. Mm. I have been insulted, abused so badly for just suggesting. All I say is there are people that have got life-affecting side effects. They should be compensated. The scheme should be looking after these people and it's failing them. And for some people, that infuriates them, that single mm. concept. Mm. And I don't understand it. I can only conclude that the world has gone mad. Mm. I do. I think that COVID has actually done stuff to people. And I've got long COVID, by the way, before anyone starts saying, oh, the COVID denies off again. I don't deny COVID. I just think that what's happened to our society as a consequence of it is quite frankly bizarre. Uh, anyway, let's talk about Scotland, shall we? The SNP has once again hit the headlines for all the wrong reasons after it was revealed that the party is looking to seize so-called Henry VIII powers that would allow them to unilaterally amend any act of parliament in a crisis. The party claims it wants to be able to close schools, enforce stay-at-home restrictions and shut down hospitality venues beyond the COVID crisis without having to seek parliamentary approval. Got to say it didn't go down too well, though, because 90% of the 4,000 organisations and individuals that responded to a Scottish parliamentary consultation opposed the move. Although, I've got to say, the SNP's John Sweeney claimed that the public backlash was whipped up by Tory MSPs who have misrepresented the move. Got me thinking, actually, Jeevan, about the mm -hmm. whole concept of devolution. I mean, actually, to be honest, it got me thinking about um, the whole power grab, people desperately on a power trip. But, you know, I'll move on from that and focus on devolution. Your thoughts? This isn't a devolution issue, I think. I think it's an SNP issue. This isn't going to go through with 90% of these 4,000 organisations objecting. I think we all think it's silly. I think everyone who's seen that thinks it's absolutely bizarre. And if a government in Westminster was to do it, we'd also think it's bizarre. Actually, the government in Westminster will step up and do it. I think we need more devolution in this country. The reason why we're so centralised and unequal, both economically and politically, is because everything's in Westminster. We need more power away from the centre. And also, the, well, unfortunately, sometimes uh, regional governments will do, and indeed country governments will do silly things, but then everyone will see they're silly and they'll be stopped. So it is silly or the SNP. I don't think this is going to last very long. Good. Uh, ben? Well, I think if you want a general guide in life about what is good and what is bad, anything instituted by Tony Blair is likely to have been bad. And devolution was one of his brainchilds. And the way he's done it is absolutely daft. I mean, the SNP is as daft as brushes, as we all know. But just look at Northern Ireland for a second, which, you know, a, a province with which I'm now very familiar. You have mandatory coalition government in Northern Ireland. If you're the DUP, um, uh, UUP, Sinn Féin, if you're elected, you join in government. So what you have is a government without policies and you have a constituent, significant constituent member of that government that wants the end of the United Kingdom. It's as daft as brushes. So I would, I agree with Jeevan, we want to decentralise the way the United Kingdom is, uh, is, it works. But I don't think you do it through devolution. I think you do it through much smaller units of operation, local councils, district councils, and so on. Um, devolution, I think, has been disastrous for the United Kingdom. It's allowed people like uh, Nicola Sturgeon to have a soapbox. Um, it, it pays MSPs, MLAs money effectively to do things that are not in the national interest. Um, I would abolish devolution and I would go to sort of much smaller units of 
uh, operative authority. Ali? Yeah, look, I think the genie's out of the bottle on uh, Scottish devolution, and I don't think it's reversible now. I think uh, on a more fundamental point, uh, I think the Scots will have to determine their own future again at some point, and I think that it's up to them to do. I mean, I hope they stay, but if they go, then that's uh, their decision. I, I, the interesting thing is I can't imagine a border being erected at Berwick-upon-Tweed, but we're all armchair experts now on borders, and particularly borders in the Irish Sea. On this particular issue, I think it is crackers. Uh, I agree with... Um, uh, Jeevan and Ben on this one in particular. I also believe, look, I'm not a lockdown skeptic. I did believe that at the beginning, towards the beginning of the pandemic, uh, lockdowns, there was, a, there was a rationale for them. We didn't know much about the disease at that point. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not saying that I never believed in lockdowns, but I think on this particular case, any uh, erosion of civil liberties in a way which are taken away from you needs to be taken very, very carefully, decisions on that, and they have to be done by elected representatives in a parliamentary body. It cannot be done at the whim of the executive. Mm. I think it's completely and utterly unjustified. And I think it's quite right that 90% of these organisations are opposing it. And I think Jimin's absolutely right that I cannot see it um, seeing the light of day. But the very fact that it's even being discussed, frankly, uh, really troubles me. Yeah, I think uh, one too many politicians, not just in this country, by the way, I'd, I'd expand it beyond just this country, but I think one too many politicians have really enjoyed... Uh, a little bit too much, this whole COVID setup for my liking. I think that they think that they're a little bit more important than they actually are. And this kind of idea, this concept uh, that they can just almost click their fingers and bring countries, not it's countries plural, by the way, the global economy, as we were saying earlier on, Ben, it has been a choice to bring the world to its knees. I personally, my own opinion, not representing anyone else's, but I think it was a monumental overreaction. Uh, that's what I think. Lots of love coming in on the email uh, for the panel tonight. Kenneth says that the four of us should be running the country. Goodness gracious. <laughs> Can you imagine? Uh, well, would we agree? We'd be totally divided. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure that you want us four uh, in charge. You certainly don't want me in charge. Well, we we couldn't be any worse, could we? I mean, could we this is worse? very true, actually. By the way, you really keep knocking Boris Johnson. Who would you have instead of him? Who, I would have anyone other than Boris Johnson. Kiss <laughs> I, think, yeah. uh, I, I, look, I think, funny enough, I'm, I'm not a Labour supporter at all, but funnily enough, I think it may be a time for a change in government because the Conservative Party has so fundamentally lost its way, it needs a good kick in the shins to get back on, back on track. It is not a Conservative Party. It's a, you know, some people, some of my mates call it a con-socialist party, and I think that's, you know, more like... Well, it was interesting just on that point, uh, uh, Ben, when, when the uh, uh, corporation tax rise was being discussed, it was actually Labour that was opposing it. I know, I know. Inverted uh, situation here where the left is saying don't, don't raise taxes and the, and the, and the so-called centre-right or right are raising taxes. Bizarre situation. And there was a poll out yesterday yeah. saying that the, 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 the people trust Labour now more with taxes and the economy than they do the Tory party. I know. What a Did strange... you see that one? Yeah, what yeah. a strange uh, set of circumstances we found ourselves in. Um, Derek has been in touch saying COVID self-testing is basically great, Michelle, for anyone who wants to take a sicky. I am saying nothing, Derek. Anyway, that is pretty much the end of the show. Thank you very much to my panel, Ali, Ben and Jeevan. And thank you very much as well to you at home. Uh, Enid, I hope you're still watching and I hope that you are staying warm in that bed of yours. It does indeed sound very cosy. Uh, Terry has been in touch saying today's show was fabulous. Terry, thank you very much for your company and all the rest of you too. Have yourself a fantastic weekend and we will see you on Monday.
Thanks for listening to Jubes and Kerr, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.